ABA for SLPs. That is the topic of my chat today. Welcome to episode 93 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I am your host, Rose Griffin. We are breaking it down with Dr. Joanne Geringzer. She is a speech-language pathologist. She is the executive director of the Eden 2 programs in Staten Island. And I definitely had a fangirl moment. I have known Dr. Geringzer for all my career. I've heard her talk here in Cleveland, Ohio. I've heard her talk in Austin, Texas. I've heard her talk in front of huge audiences at ASHA conferences. She is an amazing speaker. She's actually getting on a plane to go to Ireland to do a talk. Uh, hashtag my life goals. And today we talk all about ABA for SLPs. We talk about collaboration, how to collaborate with others if they are hesitant. We talk about students with challenging behavior and how to serve them appropriately if you're a speech-language pathologist. It is a great discussion, and I can't wait to dig on into this episode. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thank you so much for joining us on episode 93 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have a stellar episode for you today. We have with us Dr. Joanne Geringzer. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. It's great to be here. I have been familiar with your work. Let's see. I've been in the field 20 years. I think the first time I ever heard you talk was maybe at Milestones. I don't know if that was 15 years ago. It was a long time ago. And you you yeah. actually talked about SLP BCBA collaboration. And I was like, okay, I like this person. Um, and then I also heard you talk down at Region 13, which is this really cool place down in Austin, Texas. I lived there for three years. And um, but now I've seen you at um, we have mutual friends. I see you at conferences and things like that. So thanks, thanks for coming on. Yep, great. <laughs> um Funny. you it's funny that I'm still talking about ABA SLP collaboration. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it's just a topic that, you know, gets a lot of mileage here at ABA speech, um, you know, and it's something yeah. that a lot of people can, it's just evolves and grows, right? I mean, yeah, because that was so long ago yeah. that I heard you speak. I think it was right when I got my certification. I've been duly certified for 10 years now. And wow, a lot has changed, you know, <laughs> in the yeah. field. And so uh, I'm excited to have you on. But for those of us that maybe knew with uh, who you are in your work. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey into the field? Sure. So I, um, believe it or not, I'm starting my 40th year here at Eden 2. It's hard to believe. Wow. Um, yeah. When I, when I was um, growing up, I had two friends that were, they were twins and they were deaf. And so my goal and aspiration was to work with the deaf. But when I uh, went to undergraduate and graduate school, I, I decided to become a speech pathologist so I could still work with the deaf. But of course, I had my first child with autism in a clinic and I never looked back. And um, so I graduated uh, with my master's in 82 and literally started at Eden 2 um, in 1982. And the interesting thing was it was a school using applied behavior analysis, even back in the early 80s. Um, so obviously, as a speech language pathologist, it was um, not something I, I mean, I had taken some courses in, in ABA, oh. uh, because I went to a pretty behavioral master's program, but it wasn't 
in my graduate training as a speech pathologist. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you're working with really challenged kids with autism and you're being taught all these really wonderful um, strategies on how to help them navigate the environment and you just see how well it works. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, it was, I I felt really fortunate because I got in at the very early stages. Um, I will say this, uh, the ABA that I did in 1982 looks nothing like the ABA in 2022. Mm -hmm. Thankfully we, we evolved. And so at here at Eden two, we have, preschool, school age, adult program, residential program. We really serve kids from from two till they're in their 70s or 80s or however long they need us. Um, And and every one of our programs uses the principles of behavior analysis. So how many students are you serving at Eden 2? Well, we have a, a preschool. We have two schools. So overall, we're probably serving kids the ages of three to 21. We're probably serving about 180 kids. Okay. And is Eden 2 considered a non-public program? Correct. Okay. Okay. So and we are, we're publicly funded. Kids okay. who come to Eden 2, they get sent by their school districts. Okay. And it's considered a non-public school. Okay. Because I don't know, I work for, I worked for the learner school. It used to be called the Cleveland Clinic Center for Autism. I don't know if you ever came and did a training or anything. Peter Gerhardt, I'll never forget. The first time I met him, I was 24. I worked at the Center for Autism for three years. I always call that my autism boot camp because just like you're saying, it was the first time I was ever learning about applied behavior analysis. I was meeting kids that were 18 and had no way to communicate besides unsafe problem behavior. And then we were helping them use a text speak to communicate for the first time at 18. And it gives me chills to talk about. It's the reason that I do what I do and started my whole business. But I remember my director was Leslie Sinclair at the time. And she had Peter Gerhardt come and talk to us in this like little room. And I was like, now he keynotes and all these things. And it was just, I heard him talk for the first time. And I was like, oh yeah, love this guy. This guy is awesome. So I don't know if you ever came and talked there, but maybe you did because we had I a lot of I probably did. Uh, I know Leslie well, and uh, mm-hmm. obviously I know Peter well too. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So uh, very cool to hear about all that great work. That's amazing that you've been working there your whole career and you, you're just so such a dynamic speaker. I know that's a big part of what you do too, is that you really love to speak. That's definitely like hashtag my life goals. I know every conference I've been to, you've spoke at. So <laughs> I'm off to Ireland on Wednesday to do oh. some. It'll be great. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. We're Facebook friends. So I'm always like, oh, look at, she's doing this and that and that. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, can you tell us though, I have your book. So I know most people listen to the podcast, but some people watch it. Um, so you have this book, ABA for SLPs, just really amazing. And I have a, a new course um, coming out. Actually, when this airs, it'll have already launched, but it's called the Advanced Language Learner. So my company is an ASHA provider, but also an ACE provider. So mm-hmm. I'm very excited about this, um, but I definitely used um, parts of your book for inspiration, especially the assessment chapter. I, I really loved that because I know, and you do too, when we have SLPs and BCBAs that are working together for that assessment piece, we can just make a world of difference for for intervention planning. It's like, oh my gosh. Um, But can you tell us the inspiration for for the book and how it all came to be? Yeah, sure. It's funny because I think the the first time, uh, so I've done a lot of my work in in collaboration with my colleague, Mariah Koenig, um, and we were presenting in Ohio. I think it was in Columbus at at the uh, the Ohio Speech and Hearing, 
And after we spoke, this was probably 15, 20 years ago, after we spoke, there were a lot of SLPs who kept saying, you know, this is all great stuff, but where can we learn about it? Where can we find out? Because, you know, we're not going to read Skinner's analysis of verbal right. behavior or uh, so I said to Morelli, you know, there really, it really is not available. Um, and so over the years, we started thinking about it. And then as collaboration started to actually become more challenging, uh, we, you know, we had kind of hoped that things were going to get better every year, uh, but they really have in the last decade, I think have gotten more challenging. Yeah. So we decided to to do this book because number one, we wanted it to be available. I, and I mean, like linguistically available. We wanted the language and the terminology right. in the book to be written for speech language pathologists. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we wanted to model collaboration. So every chapter in the book was co-authored by a BCBA and an SLP. Oh. Um, and so you really do get this spirit of collaboration um, and, and the concepts that are so important for both of us. You know, I think I think some SLPs uh, feel like this is, you know, behavior analysts are telling them what to do. And yes. so they just don't want to. And, and, and the hope for, for us, at least, is that in this book, these are two, each chapter is co-authored by a speech pathologist mm. and a behavior analyst to give information about how we can help each other, yes. how we are, are better when we do these things together. I love that. And actually, I've met uh, Mariah uh, uh, at ASHA. She's really, she's so sweet, so nice. Um, oh, I didn't even realize that. I've read the book and I didn't realize it was co-authored. Yeah. We'll see. Thank you for stating the obvious because I actually <laughs> know a lot of the people that co-authored and sure. um, the chapters. So, oh, that's amazing. I love that. Well, you know, and I do think that there have been so many barriers to collaboration. I know at least because I'm online all the time because of my yeah. business that, you know, in a Facebook group, I've read recently where a speech therapist who owns a private practice said, well, we've decided that we're not going to take any clients who get ABA. And I just thought to myself, I have a friend that I send some stuff to and and vent with privately because I felt so sad about that. And they were actually going to put it on their private practice website. And the nerd in me, because I teach courses on ethics for BCBAs and SLPs, is thinking that is really unethical. I mean, that is not in the best interest of the child. And, you know, it's just really disheartening because I feel like when you meet an SLP who's so anti-ABA and there's so many people out there like that, that I want to be like, didn't we all go to school for six years and study really hard to help children? But here we are yelling at each other. Like, I believe in this and I believe in that. And I just want to be like, can't we just get along here? And it's so weird to me. I also, I don't think it's a proper understanding of what ABA is. I mean, to say that you're anti-ABA almost is like you're anti-breathing, right? I mean, I understand that there are, there are packages, right? There are models, you know, you can be uh, a LOVAS uh, ABA program or a VB program, or pivotal response training, but but the principles of behavior analysis mm-hmm. are part of our very being it, as SLPs, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we our goal is to change behavior to improve the ability of a person to communicate. Right. I don't understand how you do that without the principles of ABA in any, right. even if you're a, a developmentalist. Mm-hmm. So I just think that there's this misplaced anger, and 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 so they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. 
Yes, absolutely. And, and you said, you know, sometimes speech therapists feel like a BCBA is telling them what to do. And as a public school speech therapist, even though I'm duly certified, I can understand why speech therapists might feel that way because usually, and not always, because now the field is growing of ABA. So there are amazing districts who antecedently are going to bring in a BCBA because it's good, you know, for the kids. But what would happen back in the day is things would be going horribly for a public school student. And then a BCBA gets called in and and then we start looking at, well, what's he doing in speech? And why are you working on that? And this is what you should do. So when I teach my BC, I teach a course at Kent State for ethics for BCBAs, I always say, um, Dr. Broadhead has this really good article about ethics and working with others. And he always say, do not say, where is your research for that? <laughs> if exactly. you're a BCBA, please don't have that come out of your mouth because immediately people get defensive. And how he says it is it erodes the professional relationship. And exactly. I can't say that enough because what happens is a speech therapist meets one BCBA who's overly confident and it's a contentious situation and, and they come off as being mean or telling them what to do. And then they think that all BCBAs are like that. So I feel like... yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that's the, if there's nothing else that people will take away mm -hmm. from any conversation that I have, at least about collaboration, is you can't paint every behavior analyst with one brush, just like you can't paint every speech pathologist. I have seen some of the most god-awful speech sessions right. run by speech therapists for kids with autism, where all they're doing is chasing them around the room. Yes. Nothing gets accomplished mm -hmm. at all. But I know that that doesn't represent the field. Right. I, you know, I, I, um, I recently reviewed a proposal that, that somebody was uh, looking to, to do research on. The, it was a behavior analyst group, mm -hmm. and they wanted to demonstrate that, that whether or not speech therapy was evidence-based. I, I wanted to, to say, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, speech therapy oh. is it's like saying, is medicine evidence-based? Well, right. You know what? It depends on how it's being used. It depends on what's being done. So there's this real lack of, I mean, or or I should say, overgeneralization of of just saying uh, all speech therapists are don't use evidence, or all behavior analysts are whatever. And it, it's it's frustrating because if if we all agree to start with the child in front of us, mm -hmm. and the child is the most important variable, we can get over some of these other issues, right? Because right. I mean, I, I always say as a speech, I mean, I consider myself a speech pathologist more than a behavior analyst, even mm -hmm. though my 40 years of work have all been in behavior analysis. Mm -hmm. But I got my PhD in speech language development and in linguistics, and I apply all that really wonderful knowledge that is not available in a behavior analyst's world right. to help develop curriculum, right? To, right. to, to help... Uh, create programs. And I, I don't see how that conflicts. Um, right. And it's a shame that people can't see how incredibly more effective we can be when we, when we actually get together. Absolutely. And that's the thing. I was talking to a PhD level BCBA and I was telling her about this new course that I have the advanced language learner. And I talk about, you know, I got out the latest edition of the Owens book. That's what I took for, you know, language development. And I was just discussing this with her and 
you know, BCBAs don't get that type of coursework. We're really not going over that really rich information that we got even in graduate school. And I'm sure in your PhD that you were so knee deep in all of that. And I think that's how we have good intervention planning and programming is when we understand. And not every kid is going to develop the same way, but it gives you a good basis for this is how our scope and sequence is going to be. And so for BCBAs, that proposal, that that kind of makes me like, that makes right. me feel very upset because even though I am duly certified, I always say that I identify a little bit more as a speech therapist, but um, it's just more my personality. So right, right. interesting stuff. Um, so to, really quickly to get back to the book, you co-authored a chapter um, about assessing and treating challenging behavior. And this is something that a lot of speech therapists reach out to me. I did a talk um, for speechpathology.com about behavioral strategies for speech therapists. But, you know, I know it's something that's really hard. Like you said, you saw the speech session where somebody is kind of like trying to right. chase the child. And, you know, like, you know, the speech therapist doesn't feel good about that type of session either. Sure. And I, I get a lot of questions and you can just feel so defeated because honestly, and maybe things have changed and I'm sure they have since I got my master's degree 20 years ago, but you know, we're not always taught how to treat that student that either is hard to engage or has behavioral barriers. So, you know, right. if speech therapists are listening and they are working with students with behavioral challenges, what are some just like general strategies that maybe we haven't thought of yet? Because you know, when you're in the moment or you've seen that type of session and you're just like, okay, all wrong. You know, this is what, right. this is what right. we need to do. Um, and, you know, some speech therapists may just feel unsafe, right? Because if they're in a public school and they're working with a student has behavioral barriers and maybe a BCBA is not even involved yet, you know, um, what are some just general strategies that we can kind of keep top of mind? Well, I mean, the number one and most the thing that I learned the most was set the environment up, make sure your programs are at the child's level so that you actually reduce the likelihood that there will be problem behavior, Right. Treating problem behavior once it's occurring mm -hmm. is really, really difficult, especially mm -hmm. if you're dealing with a high level of challenging behavior like aggression mm -hmm. or self-injury. Yeah. You know, I, I, I just think that what, what I found and one of the reasons I've been in the field so long is, you know, you have to understand that look at behaviors from a functional perspective. Right. Know that they always have a reason and a purpose. And if you can design your environment in such a way that they don't have to engage in some of these behaviors, mm -hmm. right? The, 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 you know, so number one rule for me is when I start working with it, with an individual, whether he's five, 10, 20, I don't do any work the first week or two. Mm -hmm. I just want to form a relationship. I want to know what makes this kid or adult tick. What does he like? What does he not like? How does he like information presented? Mm -hmm. Like I just want to get to know him and I want him to get to know me or she, um, and then, um, and obviously during that time, I'll be doing some more informal assessment and maybe beginning a more formal. But my point is, is that when I'm actually ready to work with this individual, we A, have a bit of a relationship. B, I know what his or her reinforcers are. Um, I know how long he or she can work in a given moment. Mm -hmm. Does, you know, how do they like their materials presented? Are they, mm -hmm. you know, and I think the more you can be prepared the, the worst thing is to not have structure, right? The worst right. thing is to go in there. And, and, and so I always have more programs than I need because mm -hmm. I like to move around some learners. They like to stay in. It's like, have you ever watched people eat their meal? There are some <laughs> people who eat all their mashed potatoes 
then all their green beans, <laughs> right. right? And there are others who just mush it all up. And eat. <laughs> yes. The learners are going to be the same way. There are some learners you can't jump back and forth between programs. Others, you can't, you have to stay on a program, you know, because they just, they get too confused if you move back and forth. So right. again, to me, the most important thing is uh, to, to be prepared and set your environment up in the right way. Half of the problems that we see in kids with autism is because there is a dramatic mismatch between that individual and the environment that you've placed them in. It's, it's either too loud, it's too chaotic, there's too much stuff around, there's not enough stuff around, mm-hmm. you don't have the right reinforcers, or even worse, you do have the right reinforcers, but the learner never gets access to them right. because your programs are so high, high up, right? So yes. That's the thing too, is the mismatch. I've been talking about the student that I worked with and I inherited how you do in a public school, you inherit these goals and the student was working on retelling and the student wasn't even constructing sentences on their own. And then you're like, uh, you know, so I go back to that assessment chapter in your book because it's really thorough. And, you know, it yeah. makes us realize if we're not working on the right thing, if you've, I've seen sessions too, where, you know, I did an IEE and I go to visit a student and they're not yet speaking and they have autism and they're working on prepositions. And you're like, oh, no, <laughs> this isn't going to work. Right. And then we're wondering why, you know, Johnny is engaging in self injurious behavior and there's just, there's, better way to reach that type of student. So um, yeah, those are really good. Thank you for sharing that because, you know, that's just people really struggle with, you know, how do you reach that type of student? And then, you know, some people may not have a lot of students that present that way, but they're always kind of thinking, well, how can I do better? Like what, you know, how can I reach that um, student? So interesting that each chapter is written by an SLP and BCBA. That's great because I want to go back because I know some of the people that um, authored those chapters, but is there a, a a story that you can share with us about, you know, a positive SLP BCBA collaboration. So, you know, some people listening will be like, yeah, like I love working with other SLPs or BCBAs. And then others, you know, may have kind of this bias where it wasn't a great experience. But do you have anything to share that might be a positive, um, you know, collaboration that you've seen in your personal at Eden too, maybe? Well, honestly, for me, it's it's been my whole career. You know, my whole life I've been working with behavior analysts. And sometimes, it's them helping me understand and learn how to set the environment up, learn all those. You know, I can understand, I understand principles of behavior analysis in a very, very different way than I think a lot of SLPs do, because pretty much every speech session I ever did mm-hmm. here at Eden 2 mm-hmm. was a collaboration. You know, back in the day when I first started, they weren't called BCBAs mm-hmm. uh, because we didn't have the credential then. But that's the their, their focus, right? Um, And then the flip side is sometimes it was me saying, listen, you guys don't have any literature on language processing that I know of, right? Right. There's nothing in there that talks about the lexicon and how we process words and retrieve words. But I have a lot of ideas on how we can improve language processing in kids with autism. Now, do I know um, we have to try these out, right? Mm -hmm. You know, based on the science of language processing and what I know is going wrong with this learner, let's try this. Let's try building some fluency, mm-hmm. um, you know? And so it's been, for me, it's been both ways uh, that have been really, the, the best, I think, area for me that I've been able to work with BCBAs is in their sound and speech production. Mm-hmm. I mean, there. I still remember having a conversation with a, a well-known behavior analyst <laughs> who wrote a well-known uh, assessment tool 
And in his first version of this tool, they were doing a phonology assessment, right? And they had NG as if it was one phoneme. Oh, okay. I mean, as if it was two phonemes. I'm sorry. So it was Uh like like in the word song, it was sanga. Right? Oh, that, oh dear. That's that's incorrect. Oh, there is right. no nga. <laughs> right. So that kind of collaboration is you right. know, this is stuff that's second nature to, to speech pathologists. You know, we we took a course on anatomy and physiology of speech oh, So much, so right? many courses. Yes, that speech sound inventory and you know how to work on a coex or verbal imitation. That really yeah, I can see people sometimes they'll ask a question in a Facebook group. Either it's a it's a BCBA or behavior person they're asking about AAC or a speech sound question and um I'm always like, "Okay, get the popcorn out" because I always want to say, right. "Have you worked with your speech language pathologist because we have a wealth of information. I mean, all the transcription that you have to do and you're just so intimately involved. It's more than just looking at that speech sound chart, right? When things yep. Oh my gosh, it goes so deep. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, I'm, it's so cool that you've had um, this type of career and that type of positive collaboration. So if people are listening and they are working with others, and I kind of mentioned this before, who you know are not collaborative, what would be some good first steps to kind of open up that communication? And in real life, because I think that's the thing that's important. When I started my online business, if somebody had a question about something, and I would obviously give an answer that was pro-ABA because that's at my core of who I am. Sometimes online, these things don't really translate. you know. So like an yeah. in real life situation where maybe somebody has a bad taste in their mouth for ABA or et cetera, what do you think is, is a good strategy to kind of get started? Well, I mean, it's tough because we, we as a, as a, I want to say as a country, but honestly, as a world have changed in the last few years where people think nothing of just being really mean, right? (laughs) It's just, Mm -hmm. in the old days, I would have said, get to know the person first, just like you get to know your, your learner, spend, try, you know, don't try and tell them what to do or ask because it's not going to go well Mm -hmm. if they really don't like ABA, Right. right. Or if they really don't like if they think all speech therapists are, you know, nonsense. Right. Um, but if you could just say, listen, I'm not I'm going to I'm going to walk into this knowing that I, I'm not doing everything right. I've mm-hmm. got learned. So let's say I'm the speech therapist. I'm the speech pathologist and I hate ABA. Mm-hmm. But in my head, I'm like, but I'm struggling with some of my kids. I can't I can't deal with their challenging behaviors mm-hmm. or you know, if we could just say to ourselves, it, it's not the person is not the, the bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's what you think about the the technique. Mm-hmm. So let me get to know the person. And I'm not talking a lifelong get to know. I'm talking, <laughs> right. you know, to spend and then see if you can start having some conversations. Right. Um, I do love Matt Broadhead's, you know, sort of seven step mm-hmm. model. Yes. I like the concept of, you know, and I like the fact that the BACB has updated their, their, uh, standards to mm-hmm. basically say, yes, you can collaborate with people that mm-hmm. might not be behavioral. It's not right. against your code of ethics. Right. <laughs> um, but I just, you know, and for me, what I'm doing now, and, you know, I'm, I'm at the end of my career. Yeah. I do know people who are literally being like tortured on mm-hmm. social media right. for, for stepping up and voicing positive things about mm-hmm. ABA. Somebody yeah. just told me yesterday that got, they got uninvited to a uh, international conference on autism by a speech group in a different country. They got uninvited because uh-huh. they are a BCBA. 
and they don't want it to look like they're endorsing ABA. So wow. we're in a very, so, so for me, what I'm doing now is just trying to help explain what ABA is right. so that you, you know, might be more interested. All right. You don't have to buy into the entire package. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't have to do it. Yeah. I can help you um, have a better speech session. Right. Just by giving you some minor tips on, and they're all behavioral. I know. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's what I'm struggling with is just when parents, and I don't honestly knock on the wood, I don't get too many troll comments um, that are mean unless I run like Facebook ads or something where it's reaching a lot of, a lot of people because people, the ABA speech. It's like, okay, um, this lady likes ABA. I try to just wake up and disseminate and be positive and cheery, Absolutely. you know, like I normally am. Um, but I think what's sad for me is I'm thinking in 10 years when these parents who asked a question about ABA and got a bunch of maybe um, mean comments, like you said, people just kind of let it rip online um, or kind of mean that in 10 years, they might look back and say like, oh, I wish I would have just tried ABA for my child because what it could have been, they could have been more independent or they could have learned this skill. And I guess like I'm forecasting into the future and thinking I'm really scared for people. So I always tell parents like, don't get online and ask questions because it is a really scary place depending um where you land. So gosh, that's unfortunate to hear. Yeah. That is yeah. One, really of, one of the things we're we're doing now is, you know, we've been here for 40 years, doing yeah. ABA for 40 years. We are now putting together a alumni newsletter. Oh, basically, uh, where are we now? Mm-hmm. And, and it's just gonna cover, you know, 10 or 15 of our graduates. Mm-hmm. Some and by graduates, I mean you could have graduated when you were six, right? Yeah. We, right. We moved on to um, and again, it's not all kids who are in college and married. Mm-hmm. It's right. Some kids are just, you know, they're independent or they're right. uh they're able to go on vacation with their families, which yeah. they never were able to do. Right. You know, I bought yesterday I was in a grocery store and I bumped into a mom who I I hadn't seen in three years because of yeah. COVID. And she's like, I just can't tell you how grateful we are that my son, and he's very challenged, yeah. but that my son is in your program because I know he's safe and he's learning and he's right. getting more independent. So I I agree with you, Rose. I think it's really scary um, because we know without question that ABA is effective mm-hmm. and, and it's particularly effective for those kids who have really learning and behavior challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it now, kids that come back after five or six years mm-hmm. and they've lost so much. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's amazing the work that you're doing. Um, thanks so much for coming on. And where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, they could just jump on the Eden 2 website, at least for the next few years, which is <laughs> www.eden2.org. Um, and that will put them into the Eden 2 world and find out where I'm at and where we are as an organization. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It was great to see you. Great to see you too, Rose. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.